I'm Teffer. And I'm Bailey. Welcome to Yeah, a show where we talk about young adult lit and what it can teach us at any age. This is our book club and you're invited. Yeah! Yeah. Before we begin, we'd like to take the time to acknowledge that the studio where we record is situated within the traditional and unsurrendered territories of the Ganyangahaga First Nations. As settlers, it's important that we remember that the lands we occupy are not our own, and that we engage in conversations that could challenge the prevalent colonial mindset. We encourage you to take some time today and every day to reflect on your relationship with the land you live on and the indigenous communities of the area. So this week, we're uh, talking about a book that Bailey brought to my attention. Uh, Bailey, you want to you wanna tell us a little bit about Sick Kids in Love? I do. I am very, I was going to say was very excited about this book. I continue to be very excited about this book. My state of excitement about this book is, is continual and non-ending. Um, <laughs> So this is Sick Kids in Love by Hannah Moskowitz. And the subtitle of this book, which was the initial thing, I saw this book on Twitter like many, many months ago, and I was like, I need to read this. Because the title of this book is Sick Kids in Love, and the sort of subtitle on the cover is They Don't Die in This One. Um, (laughs) Which is just, I mean, it's a comment on the kind of like disability and chronic illness representation we usually get in young Mm -hmm. adult lit. Um, And it's also just, uh, I was like, oh, yeah, I feel like I'm going to like this author. Uh (laughs) I I missed that because I read it as an ebook and it's like very small in the cover image. It's great. It's uh, it's unfortunate that that needs to be a disclaimer. But yeah, I mean, so I was so excited about this book before I read it. And then it it held up my expectations Um, because it's just it's a book about kids living with chronic illness. Um, and it's, I mean, there's, of course, other stuff that happens. It's, at its heart, it's a, a teen, a teen romance. But, but it has just really incredible, really, in my experience, at least, sort of true-to-life chronic illness representation, which is not something you read very much of, uh, like, really at all. Um, and so I have a chronic illness, um, and this book just, like, really, really hit home um, and it was really wonderful. Uh, so I want to, yeah, talk talk about this great book. So this book is about, um, the main character's name is Isabel, and she's a high school student in New York City. She works for her school paper doing a sort of atypical advice column. She asks people questions and then sort of summarizes the answers to them. And Isabel has rheumatoid arthritis. So this is just sort of an established part of her life. And she, uh, one day at her monthly infusions that she gets to treat it, she meets Sasha, who is charming and rakish. And uh, and she learns has Gaucher's disease, which is not something that she knows what it is, but she learns more about it. And it's an enzyme deficiency. And so they, you know, they meet and they develop this friendship. And then they eventually fall in love, and there's also some some stuff with Isabel's family that we get into. But it's it's a really beautiful story of of first love, and also um, 
it's a really beautiful story of Isabel kind of like starting to get really know somebody who understands and relates to her because until she meets Sasha, pretty much everyone in her life is healthy people as they as they refer to them in the book um none of her friends have chronic illnesses um her dad's a doctor and and a healthy person and so it's this really this really lovely uh discovery of of kind of solidarity and community as well as a love story um and i think that's enough of a synopsis (laughs) i really appreciated coming to this book so uh i I don't have chronic illness. I have lived with chronic pain on and off my whole life, and it gave me things to think about for sure. But my mom has chronic illness, so I I grew up with a lot of, like, chronic illness discourse and a lot of, like, I mean, it was just a huge, huge, huge part of my childhood um, and my upbringing. What I really enjoyed about this book and appreciated about this book, there are just lots of little details that make it really rich, Um, but I liked that her dad being a doctor, I felt like it was kind of a new spin on the dad as doctor narrative I've seen. Like, I think I've read books with um, sick or disabled protagonists whose parents were doctors who are, like, super protective and always, like, looking for new treatments and new things to do um and you get the narrative of like I can do this back off and on this side her dad really has this idea of like but no you're my kid you're okay which I felt like like is a story I haven't seen that often but is really really common like it's I mean not specifically as a parent narrative but like it's very common for doctors to downplay chronic illness and I think it's really realistic to have Isabel's dad downplaying her chronic illness yeah one of the things that I really love about this book is it engages with how how certain chronic illness patients really get dismissed and downplayed and and how yeah, how doctors respond differently, I think, to different types of illness, but also this isn't expressed explicitly in the book, but addressed explicitly in the book. I'm sorry, I can't words today. <laughs> but we also know that gender factors into that hugely. Because um, one of the things that the book really explores is the fact that um, Sasha gets taken a lot more seriously um, in regards to his chronic illness than um than Isabel does and part of that is sort of the the different natures of of their illnesses but there's there's a really lovely thread that runs through the book of of Sasha sort of helping Isabel to realize that she actually is sick she actually is chronically ill and and that it's something that really affects her in a significant way and and that's not something that other people in her life have really acknowledged to her before and and that's really big, I think. I love that that the book look looks at that um, in I think a really like honest and helpful way. Absolutely. And there's there's a very um, multi-dimensional look at ableism and all the different ways that ableism crops up, that erasure of somebody's disability, that kind of like, oh, but you're not like disabled disabled, which Isabel's friends do a lot. And which Isabel herself kind of has has absorbed and does to herself is still ableism and is is you know dehumanizing and uh, minimizing somebody's experience. Mm-hmm. It's like it, it looks at the microaggressions of ableism. It really does. It does such a good a good job of that. Um, and it also 
I, this is kind of connected to that, but it also does a really good job at sort of addressing and busting a lot of myths that like non-disabled or non-chronically ill people have about chronic illness. So there's there's a part that that deals with mobility aids. So Isabel has rheumatoid arthritis, which which is a condition that can cause like diff- difficulty in getting around and a lot of joint pain. And, and weakness and, and those sorts of things. Um, and so Sasha brings up to her the, the idea of getting, getting a cane or getting arm braces or something. And, and she's like, well, like if I needed that, I forget exactly what the exchange is, but basically it talks about how like we, we have this assumption that like if you need things like mobility aids, doctors will just tell you you need them. Mm-hmm. Um, but for a lot of patients, I think especially um, women or people who are read as women, and especially patients with certain kinds of conditions, they're actually things that patients really have to advocate for themselves um, and and won't just get told that they need, which I think is just entirely opposite of how we assume that that goes. Um, and so I really like that I looked at that. Yeah, I I think one of the things that stood out to me in that conversation, too, is that at first he's looking at canes and wrist braces, and she has to point out that she has arthritis in her hands and wrists as well, and that transferring weight from from her legs to her arms doesn't actually really help her. It kind of just moves the pain around. And then he suggests a wheelchair, and she's just, like, so extremely averse to that. Because uh, because she has the idea that like well my doctor would would prescribe one to me um, if I needed it and he's sort of like I'm just not so sure about that yeah and there's I th- I feel like there's this wonderful tension where you can feel like she she wants once he brings up the idea of it she she's kind of thinking about how much something like that could actually help her yeah but also doesn't feel like it's something that she should that she actually needs or like should be allowed because of the way that she gets treated by the medical community and by other people in her life. Mm -hmm. Well, especially when we think about mobility aids, I think like thinking about wheelchairs, especially my mom has used a wheelchair when she needs one on and off for a few, oh God, a few decades, I guess, Uh, because she's been ill for 27 years now. Um, But I remember when, when she first started using one and it was really like, a doctor recommended it to her after like 10 years of illness and nobody had thought to say well maybe a wheelchair would improve your quality of life because she can walk um it's just exhausting to walk more than a few meters um but like oh but you can hold yourself up on your legs so maybe you know so many doctors being like maybe if you just walked a little bit more you could walk more um and there's the great there's the great time with Isabel when the doctor says well if your knees keep hurting you can lose weight and the point <laughs> the point with mobility aids is that people think they should be a last mm-hmm. resort a lot of the time yeah very much wheelchairs especially yeah. I think people think that you get a wheelchair if you can't walk at all um but but the thing is that that they can vastly improve quality of life for people who can independently locomote a little bit but not very much Mm -hmm. which is true for a lot of chronic illness uh patients um but i think you you were also starting to make another point teffer which is just how 
how how doctors often often dismiss things or I mean and then starting to touch on kind of the, the fat phobia that's rampant mm-hmm. in med- medicine where um, if doctors can can think of another reason why they why they think you should just be able to solve your problem on your own um, which o- often is you know you'll be fine if you just lose weight or um, you know you'll have more mobility if you exercise more but that's a also a difficult thing for somebody who exercising causes pain yeah yeah well and and I think the like you can just lose weight thing really struck me too because Isabel is not fat um it's mm-hmm. really just like that that assumption that like losing weight is a magic bullet for health conditions um yes. that like I think we've all encountered I fired a, a osteopath over it at one point yeah I I like how mm-hmm many angles of the bias that Isabel is facing this book looks at. There was another really beautiful moment um, that I want to touch on that is also a really, it's just sort of like a common chronic illness myth is that we have this sort of cultural narrative that like negative or like clear test results are a good thing. But um, if you listen to people within the chronic illness community, especially like the undiagnosed community, but not exclusively, negative test results can, in like some situations, be actually extremely frustrating because like a negative result doesn't mean that your symptoms have magically gone away, right? Um, and so we have this really beautiful scene where Isabel has gone for her um, sort of routine checkup um, and she gets her tests back and her numbers are really good and so her doctor's like oh this is great and her dad's like oh this is great and you don't really get what Isabel's reaction is until she tells Sasha about this and his reaction is oh I'm so sorry Mm -hmm. um and because he sort of fundamentally gets that like the fact that her numbers are great doesn't mean that she hasn't been in a lot of pain lately which she has been and so the fact that her numbers are good is actually like a painful and frustrating thing because it means that she's being told she should be okay and she should be okay, but but she's not. And so it leaves her in a very sort of painful place. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I really love that, that it includes that, that little detail. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's really this like this attitude that the book touches on of the doctor knows your body best and like if you're experiencing pain and they can't find a reason for it you must not be experiencing pain which like totally builds on the ugly history of like diagnosing women with hysteria and uh you know things like that Mm -hmm. I have a lot of rants about chronic illness (laughs) Um, not about chronic mm-hmm. illness, about how doctors treat chronic illness. Yeah, but this book is, no, it, reading this book is more fun than listening to my rant on it. Well, it's just, it's such a, I really think it's it's such a a good and important book to read. Like if, I think if you were someone who has experienced chronic illness, like I know I, I found reading this book just so like validating. Like we talk about representation a lot on this show, right? And like one of the things that representation is good for is like exposing you to the realities that you haven't lived. Um, But another thing that representation is like super important for is kind of like, like when you see your story 
mirrored in a work of fiction, it it validates your experiences in a very specific way and can be like very cathartic and very um, like de-isolating and all those other really good things. Um, and so like as a chronic, as a person with a chronic illness, especially like an invisible illness reading this book, um, it was just like such a like validating experience to like see so many of the things that I experienced like written down. It was really, really great because I, I don't have rheumatoid arthritis, but I have a condition that has a lot of similarities to the kind of things that Isabel experiences. Yeah, I know like even for me, I I have like I mentioned before, I have had on and off chronic pain since like adolescence. And I know I like texted you at one point and was just like, wait a second. Apparently, according to this book, there are people who are not in pain all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. I was just I've like, heard rumors I, that that is true. That was really <laughs> like, but but like 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 not like you can just like like stand and not be in pain. Are you sure? Um, but there's a, there's a moment where she's on the metro, and or is she, yeah, or she's she's deciding whether or not she's going to take a cab, and she's like, I can't justify yes. taking a cab. It goes on my dad's credit card. It's only this far. It's like this many subway stops. But I'm going to have to walk down the stairs, and I'm going to have to stand on the metro, and I'm going to have to hold this cold metal pole. Um, and she does it because she doesn't feel like she can justify. Uh, taking a cab paying for a cab and that's a storyline that I love seeing develop that she goes from pushing herself through being in a lot of pain to doing the thing that that costs a little bit more but it really improves her quality of life Um, especially considering that her father is you know the chief of surgery at a hospital like he he could absolutely afford to have her take cabs everywhere Mm -hmm. yeah I love I love that so much because yeah it's it's well it's it's another example of this sort of internalized ableism like she she knows that her dad will judge her if she does it Um, and you know think she's being lazy or something but I love how this how that scene and there are a couple of others show you that sort of like mental calculation and sort of show you how differently like somebody with certain kinds of chronic illness and somebody without like conceives of getting from place to place like say a healthy person or like me on my good days like you know taking transit to school is just one one item Mm-hmm. But um, like me on on a bad day, it's okay. I have to walk two blocks to the metro, and then I have to go down the stairs, and then I have to wait for the metro, and I might not get a seat, and then I maybe have to stand on the metro, and then I have to walk like three blocks uphill to school, and and I just yeah, I had never seen that the thought process like laid out before like that, um, and it's something that's very familiar to me. And it's, it's, yeah, I think it was just really well done. Yeah. So the representation of chronic illness obviously is like, like the major point of this book and is really good. But I want to talk about some of the other representation um, because there is a lot of other representation. And one of the things that's so great about this book, unlike a lot of other YA books about sick kids, is that her being sick is not the main point, uh, main plot. Mm -hmm. It's, it's just something she lives with. One thing I love is that uh, she and Sasha are both just kind of casually Jewish and being Jewish is you know a part of their day-to-day life and 
that's a representation that that shows up but I feel like it was very well represented in this book mm-hmm. like at some point somebody makes a joke about Tikka and Olam and there's no like I don't feel like it's like which I probably just said wrong because I'm not Jewish there's just like it's just there's just like a lot of very casual reference to being Jewish and it's not like oh I want to make this character Jewish so I'm gonna kind of shoehorn in some Hanukkah or something because I mean the author is Jewish mm-hmm. so <laughs> yeah well it's it's a very good kind of representation where, like, you can tell, like, that it is written, like, the representation is there, like, by and for the people it's representing. Mm-hmm. Like, it is written by someone who is Jewish, and it, it and the representation is meant primarily to be read by other Jewish people, I yeah. think. Like, it's not a caricaturized representation at all. Exactly. Um, yeah. which, 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 I mean, you get just in general, but I feel like you do often get with Jewish characters in books um, that it's a kind of caricaturized. It's written for the readers. It's like, like if you think yes. about like Lily in um, Princess mm-hmm. Diaries. Yeah, it's and like, specifically okay, we're... written for the... Sorry. Sorry, I was going to say like, so we're in New York, so like obviously there have to be some Jews, so we'll make her a Jew and her parents are doctor or like are... are psychologists and they celebrate Hanukkah and that's the extent of her Jewishness you know yeah it's I want to can I edit what you said to it's written specifically for the non-Jewish readers you just said for the readers yes thank you and there's also a lot of very casual queers casually existing in the book so many including Sasha who is just nonchalantly bisexual yes um and we love bisexual boy representation so much um but also, like, I love the conversation where he talks about how there's, like, a very high percentage of gays in his family. Mm-hmm. And, yes. like, it, you know, his parents got divorced because his mom is gay. And that's that's just, like, another casual point in the story. And it's just, yeah, they have a mm-hmm. diverse group of friends. Or is Isabel has a diverse group of friends. And uh, it's just, it's realistic. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a book that that portrays you know a fairly realistic slice of life exactly, which you know we we just we love to see. Yeah, and I think I think this book also is um it's a really it's a really like lovely and nuanced um portrayal of like navigating a first relationship. I think. Yeah, I was gonna say like there was a period where I thought they were gonna break up, and I thought I was gonna be happy they broke up. I also had that, yes. Yeah, yeah. where I was like, oh, okay, uh-huh. Just because, like, they clicked over this doesn't mean they should be dating. Um, mm-hmm. And then they, you know, navigate it in a different way. Um, but there's there's good establishing of boundaries and there's good sort of navigating that, okay, we started, we got together and we've spent every waking moment together and maybe we need to remember to also have other people in our lives kind of thing. Yeah, like navigating, yeah, like how to be in a healthy relationship and how to, yeah, have like healthy closeness and healthy distance and, um, yeah, and like what it is reasonable to ask of a partner and what it's not. Mm-hmm. And I just, yeah, I thought it was really, really well done. And I also liked, I feel like, I mean, maybe it did a little bit at like one point, but it didn't, this book didn't feel like it followed the sort of classic trajectory of a of a teen romance novel um like I think it it changed the script a little bit which I also like I think it did and it didn't 
Like, mm-hmm. it, it to me, it, it followed the pattern enough, you know? Like, there's the getting together and there's, like, crisis and there's resolution. And it's kind mm-hmm. of hard to get away from that. But it's certainly, like, fresh. And one mm-hmm. thing that I really appreciated um, is that I felt like, like, we've talked a little bit about the role Sasha plays in helping Isabel own her her arthritis and own what she needs to live comfortably with it um Mm -hmm. but i do feel like sasha gets splainy at her and has a Mm -hmm. tendency to try and tell her what she needs um and kind of try to tell her what her experience should be and the way she should live and Mm. there is kind of a good period of reckoning with that where she's just kind of like I'm going to take some time and think about this and I'm not just going to accept what you're saying because like sure this is how you do it but it's not necessarily how I want to do it um and I appreciated that quite a lot uh that that when he gets kind of too splainy she's sort of she gets pissed off and rightly so um especially Mm -hmm. when he's like telling her also that she needs to stop crowdsourcing her life it's like well okay if she needs to stop crowdsourcing her life you need to also stop telling her what to do um yeah yeah I really like I really like that um again just like a healthy relationship like boundaries and Isabel is very good at like having healthy boundaries um Uh, I mean they're well like or she gets good at it yeah I would say this book is a lot about Isabel learning learning to set boundaries and, and learning to set boundaries against pushback, which I think yeah. is really cool. Um, yeah, I, I guess by the end of the book, she is she is pretty good at boundaries. Yeah, I think um, one one thing that I would sort of fell into with her character is seeing a character who's very self reliant and assuming that means she has good boundaries. Because from mm, yeah, the beginning, she really, like, takes care of herself. Her father's away a lot of the time. Her mother is gone. You know, she's kind of a, like, Matilda character who's just been taking care of herself. And there's sort of a process in the book of realizing that her taking care of herself doesn't necessarily mean she knows all of her needs and is meeting those. Yeah, that's a good point. And also, yeah, like, Isabella is somebody whose mother just left without saying goodbye six months before the book starts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is another really significant plot line and one that is handled well. Um, and one that's left very open-ended, which I feel like is not something we get a lot. Like I was... Yeah. Yeah. I really expected like more resolution on that storyline. Yeah. And I think it's cool that there's not because not everything gets neatly resolved, right? And. Mm-hmm. And and lots of people have sort of complicated and painful family dynamics that that don't get resolved or take a long time to resolve. Yeah. So yeah, I think I think that was very cool too that 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 was that the author made that choice and that she like she tries to call her dad out too and get more from her dad. Um, mm-hmm. And I did really really appreciate the process of her. You know, she blames everything on her mom because her mom is the one who left and she has to kind of learn and acknowledge the role her dad has played also. Um, And I really appreciated that. And I appreciated that when she tries to kind of find some resolution with her dad on that, there there's not really resolution. It's kind of she sort of has a like, well, I guess this is as much as I'm going to get. Yeah, that's all. That's yeah. Also just very, very realistic and very good. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and you I think you're left with the feeling that she will probably keep 
keep pushing that hopefully but but that it's not going to be sort of a magic all at once thing and i felt very sympathetic to her dad Mm -hmm. like like for all that he has flaws and the flaws are very clear he is somebody with a high stress difficult job uh and who's been put in kind of an impossible personal situation um and is handling it the way he's handling that whether that's to the best of his ability or not um but i i did feel very sympathetic for him yeah yeah absolutely he is i mean he's a character with a lot of flaws but he is definitely like a a realistic and also like uh sympathetic to a degree character Mm -hmm. i think if i had any like quibbles with the book i mm-hmm. really would have loved to get a little more perspective on her mom yeah i understand well, it as a way? writing in choice like like i get it as a writing choice and i get that some people are just shitty and her mom did a really shitty thing but it just like i understand mm. it as a writing choice you know it's just such a big question mark like how do you just leave your kid yeah, so there's more nuance on the mom. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. um, yeah. she does talk briefly about her mom sort of, I mean, from what it sounds like, being very depressed and not having the life that she wanted, including, you know, she had a kid without really wanting to have a kid uh, mm-hmm. and, and told her daughter that which she should not have. But I just wanted like a tiny bit more context. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Yeah, it would definitely have been interesting to to get more on that yeah but i guess i guess that that isabel um just didn't know yeah i mean and Um, and isabel makes the choice not to get the background on it mm -hmm. yes which i think is i think that i like (laughs) how that plays out like she sort of realizes like i don't actually want to know more right now Mm -hmm. do you want to talk about the dead imaginary friend yeah i can't believe we didn't talk about that so Isabel has a dead imaginary friend. Yeah, it's very interesting. Who is also basically her, but also obviously not. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so Isabel has this imaginary friend who I think she's had for a few years, but like not since she was a kid, it doesn't sound like. Um, like so, d- Does it say how old she was when she first invented this, this imaginary friend? She says Claire? that the imaginary friend has gotten older with her. The impression I got is that it's been since she was diagnosed, at least. For some reason, I had in my head that it was when she was, like, 13, but I could be just entirely making that up. She, so when she, ta- when she talks about the age at which Claire dies, she starts at 13. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where that impression comes from, but I don't think it's firm that it started at 13. But Fair. I do also think she got diagnosed around... Yeah. I think she was eight or nine. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I don't... It, it's not extremely important. But anyways, Claire, um, her imaginary friend Claire had an autoimmune disease. I don't... Not RA, but another autoimmune disease. And and died because her mother didn't have good enough health insurance. And yeah, it, it's it's very interesting. It It's kind of... Mm-hmm. I feel like it's the way that she acknowledges that she is sick and needs to be cared for without acknowledging that she is sick and needs to be cared for. Yeah, I think it, like, it definitely has to do with this sort of like, yeah, need to be cared for and, and desire to be cared for and desire to be taken seriously, I think. Because mm-hmm. the fact that like this, the friend did die of her, of not getting treatment for mm-hmm. her, for her illness. 
Um, I think it's also definitely an expression of of feelings about her mother because another feature of Claire is that she has a really good relationship with her mother and her mother is very loving and very caring. Yeah. And when, I mean, she talks about fantasizing about being sick even before she was diagnosed and that that somehow makes her illness not valid. You know, when she's talking with Sasha about that, he points out that she needed to be cared for before she was diagnosed too and that you know fantasizing about being ill and receiving care is a natural response to neglect and I I really appreciated that moment yeah absolutely yeah like I really I think that whole part of her character is really interesting and I think yeah dressed really well and makes a lot of sense yeah like I really I really like that that the sort of need for care is is talked about and also like sort of in in various ways like she she needs to receive more care like for her illness specifically but also just like as a child she did not receive all the care that she should have received exactly cool um anything else you wanna i think i've touched on all of my like big things i just i just really it was just a really like realistic and good good chronic illness rep oh one one more chronic illness thing and then i'll and then i'll stop Mm -hmm. um is i also really like that that it touches on because i think i mean i really liked this because this is something that i experienced touches on sort of like the metrics that isabel uses to and probably people around her have used to determine like whether she's really sick or not and one of the things is like well, I have never been hospitalized. And, and you know, like, Sasha ends up in the hospital a lot. But but I like that the, that the book touches on that that doesn't necessarily, that isn't necessarily, like, 100% indicator of, like, the overall impact that her illness has on her. Mm-hmm. Like, I just really like that it highlights the fact that, like, a chronic illness can be, like, medically not that serious, which is, like, I, I would say what Isabel's experience falls into um, while still being very disabling and very um, like having a, a huge impact on quality of life and stuff. Yeah, exactly. The the distinction between terminal illness and non-terminal illness or life-threatening condition and not life-threatening, but, you know, chronically painful um, and mm-hmm. this idea that somehow chronic pain should not be taken as seriously as something that's life-threatening. Yeah, or even, like, it, the distinction between illnesses that have a um, sort of, like, something that is clearly wrong in the body and ones that don't. And, I mean, rheumatoid arthritis, like, there are things that are, like, measurable, um, but but something like, like Sasha where he has an enzyme deficiency, Whereas, like, my chronic illness, for example, is not something where you can kind of point to, like, this is the gene, or this is, like, what you're deficient in, or or there's not a structural thing, but there's still a lot of pain and fatigue and other symptoms. Um, and so I really, I really like that it kind of delved into that and how that's kind of a false, a false idea that we have that, like, things that have, like, a clear physical ideology or you know, something like that that require more intensive, like, medical care um, or are life-threatening are, by necessity, more impactful. Yeah. It's just very good. It's just a very good book. And it's a fun book, too. It is fun. Thank you for uh, 
suggesting it because it wasn't on my radar. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, thank you for, well, thank you, Chronic Illness Twitter, for putting this in my radar <laughs> once upon a time. And yeah, I'm really glad that it's been on like my list to suggest for like a while and then I just keep not, well, we have, we've been doing themes mostly, so we just hadn't fit anywhere. Um, and yeah, I'm really glad that we got a chance to read it. And you should all get a chance to read it, too, because it's really good. Mm-hmm. Sick Kids in Love by Hannah Moskowitz. They don't die in this one. And be sure to tune in next week for our 100th episode when we are going to chat about uh, our last 100 episodes on this show and how it's been. And if you want to be a part of that conversation, you can submit your voice recording or written account of your favorite memory of the show to the yeah podcast at gmail.com by August 14th. Um, so that's Friday, and we will share it on the episode. We've already gotten a few. It's been really nice. Also, make sure to check out patreon.com slash yeahpodcast for our Patreon special offers that are running this month to celebrate 100 episodes and also two years on Patreon. Yeah, exciting. Thanks for listening to Yeah! If you want to leave feedback, suggest a book for us to read, or just say hi, send us an email at theyeahpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at Yeah Podcast and individually at Teffer Bear and at The Balesosaurus. If you like the show and want to help us make it even better, consider supporting us on Patreon. You can get all kinds of great perks, especially uh, in August. You can get some really special perks, including early access to bonus content, shoutouts, guest appearances, and more. Head to patreon.com slash yapodcast to donate. Shout out to our patrons, Catherine Reshi, Erica Stitchberry, Lizzie Tenhove, Kat McGuire, Chantal Thomas, and Matt Dever. We have merch! Hit the merch link in the description of this episode to get some from the fine folks over at Public. You can also support us for free by leaving a rating and review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts, subscribing on Spotify, and by sharing this episode with a friend. Special thanks to Great Bear for letting us use their song Jenny's Groove as our theme music. You can find their music for sale at greatbearmusic.bandcamp.com. This episode was produced by Tepera Jemian and edited, oh, that's me, <laughs> and edited by Tom <laughs> Zalatni as part of the Upward Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network at upwardnetwork.com. Hey, I'm Aaron Lakoff, host of Changing on the Fly, a brand new podcast on the Outfit Network. Changing on the Fly is a podcast that dives deep into the intersections between hockey and social justice. We take on issues of sexism, racism, and homophobia on the ice. You'll hear from athletes, activists, fans, scholars, and even musicians who love hockey but want to keep the jerks out of the game. Think Colin Kaepernick or Serena Williams, but with skates and less teeth. It's your perfect antidote to Don Cherry and Coach's Corner. Hey Don, what do you think of changing on the fly? Not the left-wing pinkle media, bleeding hearts, guys. What are you, nuts? Anyways, you can find Changing on the Fly wherever you get your podcasts, or visit us online at changingontheflypodcast.wordpress.com. If you're someone who interacts with kids, you're probably familiar with moments of being asked questions you're just not equipped to answer. Whether it's the old favorite, where do babies come from, or the nuances of discrimination, Rad Child Podcast has your back. 
Each episode, your host, Seth Day, leads a discussion about topics like race, disability, loss, gender, sexuality, and so much more. Our goal is to give grown-ups the tools to talk to kids about almost anything. So come give a listen. Rad Child Podcast, helping to raise a generation of open, compassionate, rad kids. Available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and just about anywhere else.